Welcome to episode 9 of my podcast series. My name is Danny Houlihan. I'm a historian, author, and musician. In this episode, I will cover the history to date I have researched of the Promontory Fort and Castle in Ballybunion, North Kerry. Through his people, his culture, and its rugged coastline, this is truly Danny Houlihan's Irish experience. Strategically located, Ballybunning Castle commands extensive views of the plains of Nor Kerry and the inward Shannon Estuary to Foynes and Limerick. This early site has a rich golden past of Nor Kerry's history and culture. The castle, elevated above sea level on a large projecting outcrop of rock overlooking two golden sandy beaches. This elevated promontory site was fortified many hundreds of years previously, during a period of Ireland's history between the Iron Age and early Christian period, around 500 AD. Early settlers of the Clan Conra, later O'Connor Kerry, had been associated with the site and the area stretching back into antiquity to the arrival of the famous clan. Construction of the Tower Massive earthworks were undertaken on the landward side of the promontory. A large high protective mound was constructed to a height of 8 foot and was 24 foot thick with a deep fossa at its entrance. Another fossa existed 160 feet from its outer mound. The entire site was at that point surrounded by a high wide protective mound. The purpose was for protective and defensive. The high banks gave excellent views to the eastern and western landscape from any would-be attacker. The enclosure above gave its inhabitants protection from any attack which could be mounted from the beach below. What supplemented their daily diet? During this period, the Shannon Estuary abounded with fresh Irish salmon which could be speared locally. In the nearby oak woods of Conocanore, Beal and along the coastline of Ballybunion, the Irish red deer roamed. Venison could be obtained and killed at the nearby rock called Corignafiola, or the Blood Rock. Their dwellings were primitive, constructed of dry stone walls with the hides of wild animals, which were used to roof the structures. Stone was the available raw material in the Ballybunin area at that time. The promontory fort was effective for any clan or resident family to survive in relative peace. Enhancing the safety and additional storage, another unique feature was added, which completed the site. It was called a souterrain or underground chamber. Sous terrain takes its name from the French translation Sous Terre, meaning below land. These elaborate underground chambers were constructed for storage or if the settlement was attacked. The construction work of these ancient structures was enormous, with large deep excavations below ground to facilitate the foundations, most of which no mortar was used. The then primitive art of the dry stone mason was clearly important, as every stone had to be shaped to fit into position 
in order so as the roof and walls could withstand the sheer weight of the backfilling material that was excavated during the construction. Every suturin was different in length and size, depending on the application it was intended for. From the available history, we know that an escape hole led from a dwelling above the ground to the chamber. Then one could enter the chamber at different heights and levels. Exits from the structures was only known to the occupants and normally led to a safe place beyond the structure. The entire area where the promontory fort stands today was excavated using primitive stone tools. Thousands of tons of earth and mud was excavated from the site while the passageways and underground rooms were being constructed. Once the souterrains were finally completed, the backfilling and the entire area was backfilled and sealed for eternity. Then small primitive circular buildings were constructed, made of wattle and mud, on the promontory above. 1169 onwards saw the arrival of the Normans and the conquest of Ireland, with Norman knights, horsemen and archers, which put to an end the old clan system, with the gradual takeover of the old lands held by O'Connor. South of the present town of Ballybunion existed an enclave of Iraqi Connors. This area was called Ballyaith, or the townland of the deer. This community lacked for nothing. The arrival of the Normans posed no threat, as there was no system which could take away from their ancient customs and structures. The people survived alongside with the new arrivals. However, in the future, this would be their downfall. Around the year 1290, the Bunyan or Bunzons came to prominence in the area, and thus the name of the town could possibly derive its appellation from them, as they were the retainers and builders of the much-loved scenic Geraldine Tower House of Ballybunnan Castle. The name of Bunyan in the following centuries became the international name of the town, which originated from Bunzon, a French name during the Geraldine period of North Kerry. We read in many documents of the period of the connections with the Geraldines of the Newcastle West Manor. Milo Bunsen, who was a juror of the Newcastle West Manor. Traditionally, in the North Kerry area, the name Willem Og was used, but the correct name was Willem Ogé Bunsen. Ogé is a French name and has connections with the Fitzgeralds of Limerick. Ballybunnan is attributed to one such Willemog Bannon or Bunzon, but according to other sources, Bonanogs or Bunzon. The Desmond Rebellion and Ballybunnan. Willemog A. Bunzon or Bunyan was a rebel and rose up during the Desmond Rebellion, resulting in his castle and lands being lost to the crown of King James I, and himself, Willemog A. Bunyan, attainted losing his lands of Ballybunion, Drummond and Gutnuskehi. Seeing young Bunyan in trouble, Thomas Fismorris, 16th Lord Kerry, crept into favour with the king, having the castle and lands of young Bunyan confirmed unto him by letters patent 1612. Thomas Fismorris, Lord Kerry During the time of Thomas Fismorris, Lord Kerry, circa 1612, the castle or tower house we know today was constructed from the stones and rubble 
of the first Geraldine Castle of Bunzen or Bunyan. The tower rose from the promontory fort edge to a height of over 80 feet and was constructed of black coarse limestone quarried locally. The castle had four floors above ground level. The basement was 29 foot long by 12 foot wide. The main wooden arch door opened into the castle basement from the southern side. Access to the roof was by means of a spiral stairs which went in an anti-clockwise direction. All floors were laid on rough car belt, and the castle's second floor was vaulted to lighten the overall structure of the tower house. The windows on all floors were lit by unglazed slits, some of which are still in position today, but damaged due to time and battle. The battlements were three steps, however no trace remains today. Renaissance maps of the 1500s The Italian cartographer Baptista Boesio's map marks the castle as Castle Manion. Other maps, the castle is known as Castle Bale Bonan, and Speed's map of Munster mentions Castle Manion. The death of Thomas Fismorris, Lord Kerry, 1612-1613. Cited in the records of the Inquisition into the death of Thomas Fismorris, 16th Lord Kerry, we read on the 17th of October, 1613, that the Castrum Ville et Terra de Balamanonig had passed to Lord Kerry's brother, Patrick Fismorris. The latter, his lands escaped the confiscations of 1651. Richard Hare, Earl of Listowel. In the year 1783, we read in the annals that Richard Hare, Earl of Listowel, was in possession of the castle and lands of Ballybunion. This is where the story of Ballybunion really begins. The Earl of Listowel quickly banned the fair in Bale, with the total loss of revenue to the area. The ability to sell local-made produce was now at an end. The fair was then moved to Listowel. 1834 saw the Earl rent land to George Hewson of Innesmore, a local landlord. Parceled in with this rented land was part Santels and several plots of land in the town of Ballybunion. George Hewson quickly begun to exploit his new rented estate in the area where Ballybunion is today. At that period, there was less than 20 houses built under his watchful eye. In fact, the town was planned at the beginning as a place for landed gentry to stay and take to the small strand we call today the Ladies' Beach. Ballybunion, in 1835, was not visited like it is today, but was becoming known around the country as a place for bracing sea air lovely cliff walks, and healthy well-being. George Hewson quickly moved fast in the extraction of his acquired wealth. The construction of houses needed material, and the landscape of Ballybunnan had just that asset. Sand where the famous Ballybunnan golf course is now today. Plenty of limestone for blocks on the promontory fort. This limestone was ground down to lime at George Hewson's new lime kiln which he had constructed within the sand dunes. Mixed with tons of shells, a ready-made mix was at hand to sell on to Listowel and Limerick. Early on in the period, the landlord quarried at the southern sides of the promontory fort, with the lofty castle above. Local labour was employed daily to drill holes in the rock, between four to six feet apart, and set black powder charges to blow the rock, a very dangerous job. When blasted, 
large slabs of anything up to 6 by 5 foot square, depending on the fracture, was obtained. The blocks were then hand chiselled to exact measurement, on site by local labourers, finished and placed on horse and cart to be sold to whomever wanted them. This was very lucrative for George Hewson, who continued to extract the stone, regardless of the effects on the area and its environment. It should be noted that this dangerous, hard, laborious work was carried out within the coming and going tides in the Ballybunin area. From the 1850s onwards, more houses were being constructed within the town of Ballybunin, so the demolition was increasing at the front and sides of the promontory fort at an alarming rate. Gradually the rock was eroded, so much it reached the inner mud. Up to an acre on all sides of the fort was demolished and removed for building purposes. To facilitate building houses in the area, a building society was set up in Listowel around the year 1888, which facilitated loans for the purchase of land to build houses in Ballybunion on the George Hewson estate. It should be noted at this stage that George Hewson would have the land purchased from the various landlords in the area. 1888 saw the arrival of the monorail system to Ballybunion and the landlord seized this opportunity to increase his revenue at any cost. It was during this period to the 1900s that the complete destruction of the protective rock of the promontory of the castle had taken place. One notable incident took place at the end of the 1860s, when the landlord ordered charges to be set at full on the then weakening fortification. The workers laid the charges and ran. A series of loud, echoing explosions could be heard in the surrounding districts. However, this time, the damage took another turn. The outer wall of the tower house collapsed in the blast, leaving the castle with only one wall standing. This angered locals who protested to George Hewson to halt the practice, which he did, but it was too late. The community were outraged, as Ballybunham by this time was now a major tourist destination and the castle and cliffs were regarded as special places of interest. George Houston was not finished, though. During the period from 1888 onwards, he had a line of the Lartigue monorail extended to his sand dunes, which at that period he had allowed the new fledgling golf club committee to use for free. Thousands of tonnes of sand was taken from the sand dunes by using five-ton sand hoppers to the stole, with the Lartigue railway pulling the heavy loads. One huge sand dune was totally demolished during this period. Ironically, George Hewson became interested in the game of golf and was the club's second president, apart from the fact that he charged the club £12 yearly for the use of his sand dunes. George Hewson, the beloved landlord of Ballybunion, died in 1896. His son George took over the estate and farm in Innesmore, continuing the tradition of the Hewson family. George also sold 72 acres of land to Universal Radio Syndicate in London for the building of the radio stations. I will be covering this history in another show. At this stage, thousands of tonnes of material had been removed from the Ballybunham foreshore to the stole, both sand and stone. This also included seaweed and shells from the kitchen middens, which were used as fertiliser. Today, all that remains to be seen of the landlord's work in Ballybunham are the blast holes on the face of the promontory fort on the sides of the famous Castle Green. Sadly, the course of time and tide will finally complete the work of destruction. While he was a good man, 
and started many enterprises such as the dairies and was involved in the tourism industry and the monorail. We now have to count the cost of coastal erosion and the loss of our unique heritage. I hope you've enjoyed our brief visit back to the Promontory Fort, the castle and the famous landlord. This research is ongoing and will be updated in the future. Through its people, its culture and its famous castle green, this is truly Danny Hulhan's Irish experience. <laughs>